All right, good morning. Great to have you here. Let me welcome those of you joining us online, also those of you joining us at one of our Willow locations. Great to have you with us. Hey, a couple things before we launch in today. I want to celebrate our junior high ministry. Uh, they just came back from camp. How was camp? It's been a few days. I just want to give a big shout out to our student team. I'm a little biased, but we have the best student team on planet Earth here at Willow Creek South Barrington. Our student team is amazing, from our staff to our volunteers. There were some 491 students and leaders who were part of camp this year, and God did some tremendous transformational things in the lives of our student leaders. Great to have you guys back. Really, really grateful for who you are and how you lead so faithfully around here. Also want to give a shout out to our dads. It's Father's Day this weekend. Big shout out to you guys. Now, I heard a comedian this week talking about Father's Day who said it's one of the least celebrated holidays in our country. I don't know if you know this. Now, to put that perspective, Mother's Day is number two, right behind Christmas. And so it goes Jesus and then your mama, which makes sense to me. I'm on board with that. That makes total sense to me. But Father's Day comes in at number 20. I don't know that I know 18 other holidays, right? Uh, Arbor Day comes in at 13. I don't even really know what Arbor Day is other than it has to do with trees. Even April Fool's Day comes in at 18. So somehow we like practical jokes uh, more than celebrating dads. But I want you to know at Willow Creek, we love to celebrate dads. And so dads, we're grateful for you. Father figures, uncles, mentors, uh, you make our lives better. You make our families better. We are so grateful for who you are. This day is about celebrating you. Now, now today we're going to continue a series we started a couple of weeks ago called Red Letters. It's a journey through the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew. Matthew is an eyewitness account. One of Jesus' earliest followers, he recorded what he saw, what Jesus did, all the miracles that he saw Jesus perform, and just captured it in this gospel of Matthew. Now, over this series, we want to invite you to read the book of Matthew with us. It's the very first book in the New Testament of the Bible, 28 chapters long. So even if you've not yet started, you still have time reading one chapter a day. You will finish the book before we start a new series. So I'd love to invite you to really dive in deep into the gospel of Matthew. Now, today, we're going to anchor our conversation in one of my favorite verses in all the Bible, and particularly in the, the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 16, we're going to look at verse 24. So if you've got your Bible, you can turn to Matthew 16. The words will also show up on the screen. But before we dive into Matthew 16, 24, I'd love to back up and give you a little bit of the story, the context by which Jesus speaks these powerful words. So let's back up. Let's start at Matthew 16, 13. Here's the narrative. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some people say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. What a great statement. But look what happens next. It says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. But Peter took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. 
Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And that leads us to this statement we're gonna anchor our time today. Here's what Jesus says. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. I mean, what good is it for somebody to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Now, how many of you are, are history buffs? You like history? A few of you. My oldest son loves history. He, he actually specifically likes World War II history. And there's something about those of you who are history buffs, you know that when we can really understand history, there's something about it that unlocks the present. And that's actually true in this story. When I, when I was studying for this message, I ran across some historical things I had never known before, and it unlocked the story in a new way. And so if you can humor me, I'd love to give you a little bit of history. Now you saw in what I just read, it says that Jesus took his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. Now, where that is geographically located, it's just the furthest north you can go in Israel and still be in Israel. And so Jesus takes his disciples to this, to this really far north place. Now, it was the farthest that Jesus has traveled with his disciples up to this point. Now, why in the world would we go there? I mean, I mean, is he just trying to escape from the crowds? Does he just need a little R&R with his closest friends? I guess that's possible. But I wonder if it's really intentional why Jesus chose this location for this conversation. Now, the region of Caesarea Philippi, it contained a city, uh, an Old Testament city. It was called Dan. Now, at the time of Jesus, Dan would have just been like in ancient ruins, but they would have known what happened at Dan some few hundred years ago in the history of the nation of Israel. It was at Dan that once the, the, uh, the Israelites had, had rebelled, they went to Dan, they built a golden calf. It was this idol worship that led the entire nation astray. It took hundreds of years to get the nation back on course after they worshiped a different God instead of the one true God. Now again, that happened at a response to rebellion to a king by the name of Rehoboam. Somebody say Rehoboam. Rehoboam. It's kind of a mouthful. You're probably not gonna name your firstborn Rehoboam, but that was this guy's name. Now, you may not be as familiar with Rehoboam, but you're probably familiar with the name of his father, which is Solomon, King Solomon, the one who built the, the ancient temple. Now, when Solomon died and Rehoboam, his son, took over as king, one of the things that the people immediately did said, Rehoboam, would you, would you lighten our tax burden? I mean, your father taxed the Eber Jeebers out of us. Loose translation, right? He's like, your, your father was just so heavy in his taxation. Would you lighten the load? Would you help a brother out? And Rehoboam was going to have this crossroads in his leadership. What kind of leader was he going to be? This is his first leadership moment, response to a, like a, a demand or request of the people. So he sought out some counsel. And he sought out two different groups. One of the groups was this kind of passionate, very zealous group. They said, this is your first leadership moment, Rehoboam. Like, you've got to show people your strength. This is a moment that you, you flex your authority, your control, your might. If you give them an inch, they're going to take a mile from you. And, and so you can't allow people to take advantage of your leadership. They need to know who you are, where you stand, and you're not going to take any of their nonsense. They will either submit to you or something will happen to them. There's another group that he sought out counsel from and gave him the exact opposite counsel. It's recorded for us in 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 7. And it says this, 
The counsel was, Rehoboam, if you serve the people, they will serve you the rest of your life. And to my knowledge, this is the first statement, not just in the Bible, but in all of human history, of somebody suggesting a pathway of servant leadership. I mean, leadership in the ancient world, it was, it was control, it was power, it was authority. It was, you don't do anything or I'll, I'll stick it to you type of leadership. And so Rehoboam was at this crossroads. What would his leadership look like? Would he become a servant leader or would he become a bullying politician? Now, if you know anything about his story, he chose the latter. He, he decided he would power up. It was about authority, it was control, might, kind of show him who's boss, if you will. It didn't work very well. Eventually, the people rebelled, went to the city of Dan, built this golden idol. The rest is, as they say, history. Now, why would Jesus take his disciples to this place to have this conversation? Because in a sense, it was another crossroad that looks eerily familiar. Here's why. Jesus takes his followers to this place and he says, who do people say that I am? And they had all kinds of just suggestions of what they'd heard people say about Jesus. But then he asked the most important question. He says, who do you say I am? And I would argue that was not just the most important question 2,000 years ago. It is the single most important question you will ever respond to in your life today of what you believe about Jesus. And it was that question that, that Peter, Peter was the impulsive one. Peter was the guy that, that spoke and acted first. He thought about it later, right? He was, he was a little bit impulsive, but in this impulsive moment, he just says and exclaims, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the son of the living God. And Jesus goes, you're right about that. That was such a powerful proclamation that you could have come to that by your, your own intellect. That had to have been a, a divine revelation that God gave to you. And so Peter's kind of floating on cloud nine. He's the golden boy of the moment. He just nailed it when it came to this proclamation. But this, Jesus begins to define what kind of leader he was going to be. And he says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to hand myself over to these religious leaders. They're going to take my life, and God's going to raise me up in three days. And Peter, kind of in his impulsive nature, he takes Jesus aside and goes, over my dead body. Like, Jesus, that ain't going to happen. I'm not going to let that happen. That, like, God forbid. Like, let it not be so. And Jesus' response to that was, get behind me, Satan. Feels a little extreme, doesn't it? Peter was golden boy just a couple moments earlier, and now Jesus calls him Satan a couple moments later. That feels a little bit extreme unless you understand what Jesus is saying. You see, in earlier in the book of Matthew, Jesus was tempted by the evil one. One of the temptations was that, Jesus, you got all the authority in the world. You don't have to go the way of the cross. You don't have to serve people. You can make them serve you. You don't have to suffer for people. You can make them suffer for you. You're the one in authority. You're the one in control. You can do whatever you want. And in a sense, that's what Peter's bringing back up again. You see, Jesus was at a crossroads. They had just identified he was, the, he was God's chosen one. He was the one with all the authority, all the might, all the power, all control. What would he do with it? Would he be a servant leader that this world had never known and seen before? Every political leader that I've ever studied in the ancient world had gone the route of power, might, and control. 
Would anybody embody those words from 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 7, where it says, if you serve the people, they will actually respond in service to you. And so that's why Jesus says, I'm not going to play the role of a bullying politician. I'm going to show you what it looks like to be a servant leader. And then he invites his followers to do the same. It's what it looks like to live and lead like Jesus. Now, let me do a quick aside. Uh, One of the things that we love around here is something called the Global Leadership Summit. We have the opportunity to play host to it every single year. It's It's an amazing, amazing experience. There's about three people in the front that were excited about that, wanted to clap for that. But the Global Leadership Summit is an amazing, amazing experience. Now, we have the opportunity to play host for it right here at Willow on August 3rd and August 4th. Now, if you've never heard of the Global Leadership Summit, it is exactly what the name declares it is. It is a leadership conference, a leadership experience, where we bring in some of the best leadership minds and voices uh, of our day and really teaches us not just about leadership, but what servant leadership looks like. Like, what what is leadership God's way that looks like? Now, sometimes when you're close to an experience like this, when it's in your own backyard, we fail to see how significant it is. People will travel halfway across the world to be a part of this experience. And I'd love to to invite you to be a part of it as well. Because you're a part of Willow, you actually get special access to this conference, this experience. Uh, There's a special discount code that's only offered to those of you who are part of Willow. So if you're hearing the sound of my voice, that applies to you. And we love for you to be a part of it. Now, you may say, I'm not really much of a leader. But I would say if you have influence of any kind, God wants to steward and grow that as a leader. So if you are are an influencer in your home, you're a leader. If you're an influencer in the school you attend or work at, you're a leader. If you're an influencer at all within your business or company or whatever your place of work, you're a leader. And truly, everyone wins when a leader gets better. So I want to encourage you, invest in your leadership. Be a part of this incredible two-day experience. You can sign up by going to willowcreek.org slash GLS. The registration fee does go up on Friday. And so make sure that you sign up before Friday. That will serve you well. Now, though the rate's discounted, some of you would say, man, I still don't have the resources necessary to participate, but I would love to participate. Let me invite you to experience it in a different way. Uh, For those of you who like to participate in a different way, we need dozens, if not hundreds of people to serve and to volunteer at the Global Leadership Summit. And so if you want to be a part of it, come serve with us either Thursday and or Friday in the experience by volunteering. We'll give you a digital copy of the experience that you can take it in that way. But you can register for the event or register to serve at that same place, willowcreek.org slash GLS. Can't wait to see you in August. It's a can't miss. It's going to be great. All right, commercial over. Let's dive back in. So Jesus is at this crossroads. He's not going to be this bullying politician. He's going to be this true servant leader. And then he invites his followers to emulate the same thing. And that's where we get to this verse that we're going to anchor our, the rest of our time in, where Jesus says this, Matthew chapter 16, uh, verse 24. He says, if anyone wants to be my disciple, there's three things that have to be true about you. You got to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. So let's, let's think about the first piece, to deny yourself. Let me put that in kind of different type of words. I think what he's basically saying is, I want you to live your life for God and for others. So say that with me. Well, say it after me. Repeat it after me. Live your life for God and others. 
You almost said it like you meant it. So let's try that again. Live for God and others. Oh, I believed you that time. That's that's where it really begins. If you want to follow the path of Jesus, it's about living for God and living for others. Now, it's easy to do the opposite. It's easy to orient your entire life around yourself. It's easy to kind of play itself, to do what only you want to do, to pursue the things that you really feel like you need. I mean, it's easy to play it safe. It's easy to just simply be comfortable. We love comfort. But I would say nobody loves comfort as much as my youngest son, Austin. Austin's here. Austin can attest to this. Uh, You'll never meet a better kid than this kid. He's a great kid. But Austin loves his comfort. I mean, so much so that he won't just wear any socks. If they're too scratchy, he ain't going to wear them. He needs comfortable socks. Uh, Austin likes multiple blankets on his bed, but not just any blankets. They got to be comfortable blankets. And he has a preference of which side lays on top of him because one side is always a little more plus than the other side. Uh, Austin's the only eight-year-old I've ever known that asked Santa for a mattress for Christmas. I'm not making this up. At eight years old, we were making out a Christmas list, and Austin says, I want a purple mattress, because he heard that purple mattresses were the most comfortable mattresses in the world. And I will say, our family has been blessed by Santa that a purple mattress came at our household. And no joke, it is the most comfortable mattress we have in our house. But Austin loves his comfort. And there's nothing wrong with comfortable socks or, or comfortable blankets or comfortable mattresses. But the challenge becomes when we translate into that into our lives spiritually and our entire spiritual lives is played safe or played somewhat comfortable. Here's the truth. Growth and comfort can't coexist. And oftentimes what God wants to do is to grow us, to change us, to mature us. That doesn't happen while we're comfortable. Instead, we have to forego comfort and step out of our comfort zone to really experience God's best for us and God's best for our lives. We can't just simply play it safe. When we play it safe, we miss out on so many different opportunities because we just orient our lives all about us. It really is because of comfort that we choose not to be a part of a small group because it's too uncomfortable to be vulnerable with a group of people that I don't really know. It's for comfort's sake that sometimes I'll ignore the need of somebody that God's placed right in my pathway because it's going to cost me something to respond to that particular need. It's for comfort's sake that I don't, I don't initiate forgiveness or reconciliation from a friend or a family member that I once was really, really close with because that's really, really hard to do. It's for comfort's sake that I fail to be generous at times with very meaningful ministries doing incredible work because that might put myself at risk in some way. I mean, the the, the stories can go over and over again. The reality of it is God wants to grow us outside of our comfort zones. The truth is most of the highlight reels of life are actually on the other side of discomfort. They're on the other side of challenge. I mean, think about the stories that you will one day tell your grandkids You're not gonna sit your grandkids down and go, oh, do you remember that day that I sit on the couch and I binge watch Netflix the entire day? I gained five pounds. It was amazing. Those are not the stories we tell. The stories we tell our grandkids are the stories that we were 
facing insurmountable odds, but by God's grace, we were able to overcome. It was that moment that we wanted to quit, but we chose not to quit and persevere to something that we couldn't even imagine could be possible. It's the moment that we responded to that need of that person that came into our life. And we saw incredible fruit of what God did as he changed that person's life and used us to be a part of it. It's when God reconciled that relationship that was once so broken and so shattered, but by God's grace, through your initiation, God put those back together. Those are the stories we tell. The most highlight real moments of your life are on the other side of discomfort. They're on the other side of challenge. Refuse to play it safe. Servant leadership, living life Jesus' way, requires us to step out of our comfort zone, to not orient our lives around ourselves, but to live for God and others. It starts there. Live for God and others. But it doesn't end there. Again, let's go back to Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. Here's what it says. If anyone wants to be my disciples, Jesus says, must deny themselves, what's the next phrase? To pick up their cross. So let's build on the phrase that we did earlier. So again, it's another repeat after me. Live for God and others. Embodying love and sacrifice. Jesus says, pick up your cross kind of a peculiar thing. Now, now you and I know when we look to the cross of Jesus, the, the cross of Jesus had incredible saving power in my life. My life is fundamentally different because of the work that Jesus did on the cross to save me from my sin, to give me forgiveness, to give me the extension of eternal life. It's amazing. But what's interesting is when Jesus is telling what it really means to, to live life his way, it's not just about receiving what he did, it's about imitating how he lived. The cross is not just something to be received. It's actually something that we're willing to take on and take on ourselves. It's a life that is characterized, it's defined by this radical love, this radical sacrifice, so much so that it's so countercultural that it leaves the world scratching their head wondering, what is it about that? Because I don't see that anywhere else in our world. It's that kind of love. The beautiful thing is the early church, it was their sole mechanism for reaching the world for Jesus. Uh, they didn't have stages like these. Uh, they, they didn't have social media platforms. I mean, long before mic drop moments or, or Twitter phrases that we try to influence you know, people with, the, the, the tool that the early church used over and over again was just simple radical, sacrificial love for people. It was the countercultural stuff that didn't really make a whole lot of sense. I mean, basically what the early church would do is this. You know, back in the, the ancient days, the Roman world, many times in the Roman world, they, pref they preferred boy babies over girl babies. And so oftentimes, families would literally take girl babies, leave them outside of the city, completely abandoning them. What did the early church do? The early church went out to the outskirts of the city. They picked up those little baby girls. They brought them into their own homes. They raised them as their own children. It was countercultural. It was radical. It was sacrificial. Who does that kind of thing? Uh, in, in the years that followed, there were a couple of plagues that, that swept the known world at the time, some that were wiping out large percentages of the population. People were so afraid when somebody got sick that they may get sick too, that, that literally the sick were being uh, pushed outside of the city away from anybody else where they couldn't contaminate those who were still healthy. And so what did the early church did? 
They put their own lives at risk going to bring the sick into their homes to care for the sick, even at the risk of their own life. Who does that? Those who are willing to pick up their cross are the ones that do that. But it became so transformational, but by the fourth century, this group of ragtag group of followers, these few dozen of Jesus followers, had really become this overwhelming, like world-changing type of group that had caught the attention of the Roman emperor in the fourth century. Here's what he says. Julian says this. Their success, meaning the, the church, their success lies in their charity to strangers. These Christians support not only their poor, but ours as well. Their, their love was so countercultural, it was so contagious that it fundamentally changed the world in which they lived. It's what it looked like to live and to lead Jesus' way. Now, I want to go as far to say this. Now, what I'm about to say is going to sound controversial. It's really not. Just hang with me. I think not only Jesus' cross, but the cross we carry, they both have saving power. Now, we know that about Jesus' cross. And it's Jesus' cross and Jesus' cross alone that, that gives us the opportunity, again, to experience freedom from sin, gives us the opportunity to experience forgiveness, gives us the opportunity to connect with God eternally for, for eternal life. Only Jesus' cross can do that. However, for those who are willing to follow him and pick up their own cross, I think there's something that happens societally and culturally that there's some saving that happens as well. Here's what I mean by that. I mean, if the church were to really get serious about vulnerable youth and vulnerable children, and were willing to radically and sacrificially take vulnerable youth into their own homes, we could eradicate the foster care system. In a sense, we could save kids from a hopeless future. If the church really got serious about preventable crisis around the world, Things like malaria, that's a preventable disease that, that really has cost the lives of, 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 I mean, millions of people. If we got serious about making sure that every single human being on planet Earth had access to clean water, if we really focused our energies, we could eliminate these, what I, I would call stupid poverty. The things that really can be addressed, they really can be changed, that people can be saved from these physical limitations that ultimately cost them their life. Again, we don't have eternal saving power in the crosses that we bear, but for the sake of Jesus and his cross, it's amazing how his saving work gets extended through us for those who are willing to embark their lives on this mission. I mean, you think about major cultural advances throughout history in the areas of, of art and education and medicine and spirituality have come through the leadership of those who carry crosses on their backs. It's modeled by this radical love, this, this radical sacrifice that fundamentally causes the world to lean in and go, what is it about you? Because I don't see that anywhere else in our world. Our world doesn't operate like that. But those who follow Jesus, that's his way. And so we live for God and others. We embody love and sacrifice. Let's go back to the verse, Matthew 16, 24. It says, if anyone wants to be my disciple, must deny themselves, pick up the cross, and what? Follow me. So again, let's build on the phrase. 
Repeat it after me again. You ready? You ready? This one's going to be good. You're, you're going to have some passion this time. It's going to be good. You ready? Live for God and others. Embodying love and sacrifice as we follow Jesus. Because it's all about following him. Now, we don't go anywhere that he hasn't already been. Like we follow his lead. We, we march in his step. We're, we're, we're not leaders first. We're actually followers first. We, we follow him and wherever he's leading. Now, as I think about it, maybe this will kind of help me wrap my head around it. Uh, as I think about the Bible in general, my perspective is I, I believe that this is the authoritative word of God. And I really believe that. I believe this is God's love letter to us. It's, it's, it's how we understand who he is and what he desires for our life. Now, here's the truth. When I read this honestly, and I really try to lean in for what it really looks like to follow Jesus, there are lots of times with what it says in my life look very different. And the question becomes, when I'm up against what it says in my life looking very different, what do I do? Sometimes what we do is this. We place ourselves over the word of God. Like we, we, we put ourselves in a position of authority over it. In other words, when God tells me to love my enemies, I'm going, well, I don't really wanna do that. And we can come up with all kinds of justifications of why I don't actually have to do what it says. And when God says, I want you to initiate forgiveness, even if you weren't the offender, even if they're not asking for it, we're like, well, you know, I don't know. I mean, this circumstance is a little bit different. And instead of this telling me what to do, I start telling it what to do. Instead of it telling me how to live, I tell it how I'm going to live. And sometimes I try to get the word of God to submit to how I want it to be instead of submitting my life to what it says I should be. Make sense? The better way to live is this, is to put my life under its authority. And what it says, even when it doesn't make sense, what it says, even if I wanna go this way, if it tells me to go this way, in faith, I'm gonna trust and I'm gonna follow. It means that there are beliefs that I have that don't match up to this, and I don't change what it says based on what I already believe, I change what I believe based on what it says. It means there are times that my actions don't line up with it. And it doesn't mean I justify my actions. It means I'm willing to submit myself to the authoritative word of God because it's part of what it means to follow Jesus. Let me push you a little bit. If God never challenges your thinking, if God never challenges your belief system, if God never challenges your political opinions and perspectives, it's quite possible is because you're making God into your own image instead of submitting yourself to become like him. That's a hard thing to say, but if you read the word of God honestly, if you journey with Jesus honestly, he will challenge you, he will convict you, he will push you, don't push back. Surrender your life to him because all the good stuff is on the other side of that surrender. It's interesting that Jesus says what is probably a pretty hard teaching to receive, right? To live for God and others, not for yourself. To embody true radical love and sacrifice, even when it doesn't make sense. To, to, to follow Jesus, even if it's not the direction I wanna go. Those are hard, hard things to do. Why would anybody actually do it? 
I mean, why, why would anybody trade kind of my own agenda for his? Why would anybody trade getting what I want to do for what he gives us? It's because on the other side of this surrender to Jesus are all the things that eternally matter. Peace is on the other side. Contentment is on the other side. Purpose, meaning, fulfillment, eternal life. They're all on the other side of a surrender to Jesus. That when we're willing to give up what we want and, and, and take hold of what he wants, we actually gain the greatest things that God has for us. That's why he says what Jesus says next in the very next verse. Matthew chapter 16, verse 25. It says, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But if you're willing to lose your life for his sake, you'll actually find it. And then he says, what good is it if you gain the whole world, yet you forfeit what actually matters, your soul, because it's the only thing you'll take with you to eternity. Make sure that you are taking part in what I would call a good trade. It kind of reminds me of years ago when my boys were little, really little, like, like three and five maybe, maybe even two and four. My boys were little. We were, we were on a walk, kind of a, a nature walk. We like to do those kind of things as a family sometime. And I remember we were on this walk. Uh, Austin's very, very perceptive. And, and he came across a quarter that he found on the ground. And he was so pumped that he found this quarter. He picked it up. He's like, dad, dad, I found this quarter. I mean, he was, he was just out of his mind excited about this quarter. Now, very quickly, his older brother saw this quarter. And you could see it immediately. His older brother's wheels started turning. And Levi immediately went and he picked up this rock. And he goes, oh, Austin, look at this rock. It's, it's jagged and it's shiny. This is the coolest rock I've ever seen. Want to trade? And Austin was pretty intrigued because the rock was everything his older brother had built it to be. It was jagged. It was shiny. It was awesome because his older brother said it was awesome. And he was about to hold out that quarter to trade for a rock before his parental unit said, not on my watch. That ain't going to happen. We're not going to do that. That's a bad trade, right? That's a bad trade. Well, here's the reality. When we lay down our lives for the sake of Jesus and what is eternity, that's a great trade. We can't take the temporary stuff with us. Why wouldn't we trade the temporary for that which is eternal? It reminds me of Jim Elliott. He was a missionary, and he said these really powerful words. He was actually one that gave his life for the sake of the good news of Jesus. And he said this. He said, he is no fool to give up what he cannot keep, to gain what he will never lose. Here's the truth, though. If you try to make that trade, you will have an enemy that will want you to trade back. And he will hold up all kinds of jaggedy, shiny, awesome things in front of you. Oh, look at this. This is, if you just do this, It's not a good trade to gain the whole world yet forfeit your soul. That's why Jim Elliot says he is no fool to give up what he cannot keep, to gain what he will never lose. Here's the beautiful thing. There are those with us who maybe have never considered that trade. I'll trade my agenda for God's agenda. I'll trade my wants for God wants. 
If you've never made that trade, I'll tell you, there's never been a better trade than that one. And I wanna invite you and introduce you to a God that loves you more than you can ever begin to comprehend. And as you let go of the things that are consuming and even wrecking your life and you start holding on to the things that he wants to share with you, your life will fundamentally transform and be different. It won't happen overnight, but in God's time and what God's doing, that is a trade worth making. And for others, maybe we made that trade, but maybe at some point we found our life's pursuit going the complete opposite direction. Don't settle for the jagged, shiny, awesome rock. But God has so much more for you.